Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to Better Living, a show about the people and organizations that make an impact in our area. I'm your host, Nick Carissimi. Guns and Hoses Foundation of North Texas are my guests today. They have a big event coming up on September 8th. We're going to talk about that and a lot more over the next hour. We start off with their executive director, retired Lieutenant Dave Swavey. Sir, good to see you. How are you doing? Great, great, Nick. Thanks for asking us to come on today. Absolutely. Uh, I, I've been fascinated with this organization. I love what you guys do, and I'm always ready and willing to help out an organization like yourself. What is this organization? What does Guns and Hoses do? Well, to be honest, uh, this this all got its start um, probably about 1995, so to speak, and and we can take it back just a little bit further. 1989, the, the Garland Police Department actually experienced its first fatality. We had an officer killed in the line of duty. Uh, he was 43 years old. He had just recently been married. Lady worked in the courts, um, and I was involved in the the apprehension of the officer. Um, but what was ironic is 1989, the Garland Police Department had no honor guard. So when, when the dust settles and everybody starts doing the notifications and we start looking around, they begin to ask, you know, okay, w- what are we going to do? You know, who's going to fold the flag? Um, we get, we got to call Dallas PD to bring in, the, you know, the honor guard so that they can do the, you know, because the, uh, you guys know, I'm see, you've seen them on television, the, the funerals are huge. There's three, th- probably three, 4,000 police officers and firefighters from all over the country. So uh, I got involved uh, based on the fact that uh, I fold a flag in the military. So uh, I became part of the honor guard and uh, I knew his wife very well. She worked in the courts and um, it over over a period of several years, I buried uh, several other officers that had died in the line of duty or had passed away. And uh, for for unfortunate reasons, and uh, I'm sitting in the, the audience several rows back and you begin to ask yourself, you know, is this really helping this family? I mean, She's never going to see me. I don't know why this is so important to me. I want something to help the family. You know, what if we, and I really did, I said, what if we all gave her five bucks? I mean, look at all the people in the audience. What kind of financial support could we render? And the reason you knew that is because the lady worked in the courts. We knew the situation she was dealing with, you know. He was the major breadwinner. She was working basically a part-time position. Um, And then you move on to 1995. I got involved in the gang unit. And uh, I'm having kids. Uh, we started a boxing program shortly after the gang unit started. And kids are uh, training. They want to go to tournaments. My city was not really supportive of that. They were like, hey, you know, we, we gave them a place to train. That's all we really want to offer. And uh, it these two things kind of combined to be a very a complex deal where I just was running out of ways to raise funds for the fighters. And I happened to uh, know a gentleman that owned Ringside, uh, the manufacturing company, and he said, have you ever heard of this event called Guns and Hoses? They do it in St. Louis where police versus firemen box. And I said, well, dang, you know, I run a boxing gym. This may fit. So uh, I called St. Louis, and there was an old 
grouchy old guy up there. They never got a chance to meet him. His name was Merrill Taylor. He was a, a labor rep, uh, one-time felon, uh, convicted felon, and he actually put on and supported the Guns and Hoses up in St. Louis with Budweiser, the beer. So he gave me a lot of information uh, over the phone. Over the course of the next two or three weeks, we dealt with a lot of uh, phone conversations, and he e- emailed me or mailed me stuff at the time. Uh, and we, uh, <laughs> and he said before he ended the phone conversation, he goes, you know, this is a great event. It brings a lot of energy, but it's very hard to get off the ground. Uh, many have tried, many failed. So um, we put one together, uh, got a bunch of friends together and said, hey, I got this idea. And they said, well, if you're going to try it, let's do it. And in 2003, we, uh, we were lucky. Um, we were able to put a very successful event on, and uh, we hadn't lost an officer in that year. So we really were able to so-called practice and get our coffers uh, financially ready for what became uh, for the, the following year. And um, as time went on, people started noticing how well we treated the cops and firemen at our event. And then they one-on-one began to come to us and say, hey, why don't, why don't you guys try a hockey event? Why don't you try something for baseball? Why don't... So we just kind of became like an Olympics over overnight, you know, where we were doing golf and hockey and baseball. And uh, I'm, they'd, they'd add tiddlywinks if they thought they could do it. Um, but the benefit, the benefactors are the families of the fallen. Uh, to which, unfortunately, uh, to date, and Denise, you can correct me on this, but I think we're at 54 or 55. Yeah. Um, with the passing of Officer Givens from Dallas, that was the 55th, I believe, officer or firefighter that has died in the line of duty since we started in 2003. Um, we're there to financially support the family on the immediate need. Um, I'm not going to go into specifics, but I was told here just recently with the passing of a, of a federal officer that um, the family had yet to receive a death certificate and it had been over 40 days and all the accounts were frozen. So without the particip- without our giving, those people were just sitting there with bills coming in and no way to, no way to pay. That is not something I ever even really thought about. So sometimes these people, these families are put into a holding pattern And there's just nothing that they can do until paperwork and things like that are completed. Yeah, and that's the sad part about it. I mean, you you, you know, we we show this, and I I don't like using the term, but it it fits. We we put this family through a 72-hour circus. Um, We we take the spouse, whether it's a male or female, we put them through all of these uh, periods and systematic things of funerals and preparation and bringing the families in and all these things. And there's an officer or a firefighter in their home and a, an officer in a patrol car out front. And for 72 hours, these people don't have to think everything's done for them. And it's just a whirlwind of personalities coming and going and people, you know, trying to overprotect the spouse. And, and, um, and then when that's all said and done, they're sitting there, hour 73 in their living room by themselves and most of the time they're young uh, have young children usually it's a brand new home or or they've just established themselves in a neighborhood trying to get ready and uh, that's when the you know the the healing for them begins and then the questions begin to get unanswered and and uh, if a department's not prepared then they don't really know then they have to seek outside uh, help to get over to the family and 
and Denise will discuss it here in a little while with you, but there's some uh, required time limits for paperwork, and it has to be filled out in a, in a subsequent time frame or you miss that benefit for the, for the family. And if a city's unknowing about that, they may miss those opportunities. So our dollars, the 20000 that we now give to the family within that first 72 hours, 48 hours, um, that that's just there to try to help them, you know, establish maybe they got to fly in people from out of state or hotel rooms or feed the family or maybe in a month it's uh, paying the house payment. On your website, which is gunsandhosesnorthtx.org, I saw that uh, this year you've helped five different families and you guys have given $100,000. But I wasn't uh, aware of that time frame. So what is that? You're giving $20,000 to the family and you're giving it within that 72 hours? We try to get there before the actual funeral takes place so that whatever happens following the funeral or even leading up to the funeral, it gives them a financial support uh, for whatever, you know, we put it in the name of the spouse and they can use it for whatever need. Um, In the example of the federal officer, I think it was making house payments after the fact. Um, There could be hotel stays, obviously. Everybody has, I mean, nobody lives in Dallas. They all came from somewhere else. So everybody's got a hotel responsibility. And and then it's food and and transportation and all those things. So it's just there if they need it. The initial push for this was when you lost an officer and you had to put together an honor guard. But what we're talking about right now goes way far beyond that. When did you come to the realization, to the specifics of what these families need it came through the conversations with some of the widows and Denise being one of them. We started understanding a little bit more about what it is we were really, what was, what their true needs were. Um, you know, uh, financial advice, uh, uh, counselors, um, things that you just really wouldn't even, you know, you walk away and you don't really in- understand what kind of a commitment does their family have? How many people are not there? How much support do they have from, are they church members or, you know, things of that nature. So over time, you realize, you know, it's not just it's not just the spouse. Um, one of the fallen uh, here recently, his uh, his young son uh, just for whatever reason, you know, took his own life. Um, so was he outside the curve? Did he not receive counseling? What was going on with them? So there's an awful lot of moving pieces that go on within that 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 family unit and then the police department or fire department you know there's ptsd involved these guys roll out on these calls and then they're forever going to be scarred with the idea that i i lost an officer it was my responsibility to save him um officer givens when he was down i mean the paramedics i talked to the paramedic there and he said i i didn't know who i was going on i didn't know what it was i just thought it was a traffic fatality i get there and i see this line of blue cars and then I get closer, and then I realize there's a motor unit involved. And he goes, they're involved in CPR. Well, now it's my job to take that over. And he said, "With we were on the ambulance and out of there within, you know, five minutes. But you never know what you're, you know, what you're handling or what you're dealing with till you arrive at the scene. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, and um, the boxing event, the golf tournament, <clears throat> what I appreciate about it is how it's bringing our police and firemen together. So these communities, like, Frisco that probably didn't even exist 20 years ago. I mean, these guys really don't know who anybody else is in the Metroplex. They're young, young guys, young cities. It's getting these guys to kind of become, develop relationships with each other. I come from up north. I mean, your great-great-grandfather was a fireman, your grandfather, your dad, your brother, your sister, your uncle, cousin. Everybody was involved, you know. Uh, my dad was a volunteer fireman. So you come down here and, geez, you know, cities are 60, 70 years old and there is no history. So 
we appreciate how that has evolved too. Um, guys fight one year and then buy a table together the next year, and now the two families are sitting there enjoying the evening. Talk to me about the emotional support that these families get from everybody within this organization. So with Denise being our memorial coordinator, she actually at some point she'll give them that time to grieve, and then she'll reach out to them. Uh, she's very proficient uh, in in her job responsibility. She not only reaches out to the families and contacts them during that, that day of remembrance for birthdays, Christmas. She sends Christmas cards and birthday cards and remembrance days. Um, um, Lakeview uh, or Lakewood uh, Brewing in Garland, um, they put their name of the officer fallen on the line of duty. They put it on the bottom of the can, and they'll make 100 cases and give them the family some and then actually put them out on the shelf for people to kind of have a memento of remembrance. Um, but Denise will actually reach back to the family, and she wants to visit with them and understand what really was your spouse. We get it. They all say, you know, great fireman, wonderful cop, but who was he really, you know, what did he, you know, what was his likes and dislikes and what did he do, you know, as a father, as a, as a mother? Um, and then she writes the story and then that goes in the program. And then uh, we actually have what is called a cutoff date, so to speak. So anybody that passes prior to our event somewhere in the month of May, we kind of want to give them the opportunity to be recognized the following year. You got to give them that time. Um, and Denise will tell you more about that um, from her perspective, but um and then we just do everything. It's you know we give them the advice, and then if they want to reach back to us and say, "Hey, we are in a position where we're looking for some financial advice and things of that nature," then we're more than willing to try to connect them to people that we feel comfortable will give them the, the correct advice. Have you found that over the years that the departments and the guys in that department stick with these families in some form or capacity over the years? <sighs> yes and no. Um, <clears throat> big cities, uh, you're going to have. A large commitment at the beginning, and then as the onset, uh, time drifts away, and families are kind of more one-on-one. There may be his best friend, the guy he rode motorcycles with, um, you know, the guy that worked with him at the station. I mean, my wife, she was a firefighter, and everybody was her best friend at that station. The six months after you moved to another station, those people didn't know you anymore. Your family changed. Um, and that kind of goes without saying. I mean, everybody goes back to work. Um, so it it either becomes the the support within the widows or the support from what we can provide them um, through contacts, inviting them to events, staying in touch and in contact with us. But um, departments are different. Those families are, we, we say some, sometimes, and I said this many times, don't worry if anything happens to me, the department will take care of you. But you didn't really explain what that was. And that really is a broad-based statement that really isn't going to be fulfilled once and if it does happen to you. Do you think departments are getting better at this kind of stuff? Yes, they are. And I'll tell you why. Because, um, and this is kind of a quirky thing for me, but um, for years I always wondered how come an 18-year-old guy serving three to five years in the military seems to come back with, um, you know, if he got a Purple Heart, he gets to wear it on his uh you know, he he gets the benefit of the license plate and, oh, my gosh, we have PTSD and now we have 22 kill, which we're a big support group of. Well, nobody ever looked at the cops and firemen. This this eight, I was I did it. My daughter did it. She served in Iraq. My wife was in the Air Force. Um, Thirty five years on the job of seeing the same thing over and over again. So police departments are now starting to realize that we have a large police and fire that 
we have PTSD also. And uh, there's guys committing, you know, taking their own lives because of things. And uh, it's the 500-pound gorilla in the room for a long time that people would say, well, it was his drinking or thinking, you know, maybe the, his, him and his wife never got along or things. And we never really wanted to get to the root of the problem. But now they're starting, really starting to look seriously at, hey, maybe some of this stuff is being overlooked and we really ought to start taking a serious look at it. And you guys are there to fill that gap until departments and people kind of get this stuff figured out the way they probably should. It's probably a good way, to, I, I would think, to, to figure this organization, Guns and Hoses. Yeah, and our, our biggest thing is our networking because we seem to be connecting to an, aw, an awful lot of military groups that are starting to participate in police and fire departments. And so we don't have the answers, but we're hoping that we have the right contacts to make that happen. And that happens almost every day now where more and more military groups are seeing the need to be involved in police and fire. I've seen a big overlap. Almost all the veterans organizations that I have interviewed now, first responders are right there. Um, And and that seems to be something that both communities have kind of realized that you're dealing with the same things. Let's work together instead of trying to do this separate. Yeah, because you you reinvent the wheel. I mean, uh, and all you're doing is, you know, you're nickel and diamond yourself to death, you know, to death. And if if all these organizations pool and there's actually a lady, she is a uh, she had to retire uh, line of duty death. She runs the L.O.D.D., which is a line of duty death, mostly for firefighters. She's trying to work on putting an app together that a police officer or firefighter would have access to that on any situation, circumstance, you could pull up that app and determine what we have here for resources from psyche, you know, psychiatric care to suicide prevention to any of those things. And that would be a huge, especially since we're all, you know, technology driven now, Facebook opportunities, something that you could reach to and actually say, oh, my God, instead of because we found out that there's a fire department down uh, down south here that uh, two officers got severely burned and two guys started this uh, nonprofit foundation to try to uh assist these guys that are severely burned that may never be able to return to duty or if they do how can they you know what what treatment can they seek i mean up until me going to a conference uh eight weeks ago i, I would have never known they existed i am speaking with retired lieutenant dave swaby he was with the garland police department for how many years 35 35 years and how long have you been retired from Two, but they didn't let me really leave. They hired me right back. I'm a civilian running the amateur police boxing program, the at-risk boxing karate program. Okay. All I right. started. I have had to leave the studio before we started the interview, I think, two or three times. You cannot sit down or sit still. No. Like, you seem that you, you're all, like, every time I walk back, you're moving, you're standing up, you're... So, being retired really wasn't going to be in the cards for you anyways. You were going to have to get involved with something. No, I I tell people all the time, because I wear tennis shoes everywhere I go, when they say, hey, what's retirement like? And I point to my shoes. (laughs) I said, buy a pair, because you're going to need them. So, you're you're always moving around. Um, Let's talk about a little bit about your boxing background. Have you always been a boxer? My father was an Army champion. My brother and I boxed Golden Gloves. So, it's been a history... uh, for, for a long time, and then uh, through the amateur program, I actually ended up on the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee for two years out of uh, Colorado Springs and had a pro fighter for about five years, and he took me all around the country and uh, introduced me to some of my childhood greats that I was able to sit next to. Uh, give me, R- give me Roberto, a couple names, come on. Roberto Duran. Really? Yeah. Uh, um, I got to, I get, we actually were on the Monty Pacquiao, um, uh, um, Antonio Barrera fight. We were the undercard for that. Oh. I got to see Johnny Tapia, um, Pacquiao, 
uh, Vander Holyfield. Um, I, I talked and had a beer with uh, Oscar De La Hoya. Um, it was a, an amazing five-year road. Um, I actually had autographs from most of them, and now um, my some of my greatest autographs on gloves is Larry Merchant um, and uh, Manuel Stewart, and Emmanuel Stewart has since passed on, so I was able to get all three of those guys That's to, amazing. to sign a set of gloves. How fast was Pacquiao in person? Little guy, right? Little guy. Yeah. Um, his his uh, because of his prior skills, because he was a Muay Thai boxer, he had amazing hand speed. I mean, absolutely amazing hand speed. And um, it Antonio Brer was on the up and coming, and he was the man. And everybody was looking at him as the the next guy. And when we went to that box that match, and by round five, Pacquiao had bloodied his face to the point where my kid, who had f- fought prior to that, the fight before that. The entire attention turned from this fight to, oh, my God, I want to get an autograph from this guy. So we had to literally create like a security team immediately around my kid, um, not my personal kid, but one of my boxers, because now all the people wanted to know who he was um, because it was they were all there because of Barrera. Yeah. And it was predominantly a Hispanic crowd. So it was really funny to watch the tide turn. Like, uh, who's the next great? <laughs> uh, when did you get into coaching? Um, you know, I thought I was going to have a, a, a career in boxing, but did you uh, think that you were going to go pro or, or anything no, like that I, for a while? No, you know, I love the sport. I love the discipline. I, I'm not a, I'm not a team sport kid. And that's partly why we started the boxing program because I learned that not everybody wants to be a part of a team. And I was a wrestler or track star, you know, not a track star. I was a track runner and, um, and, uh, and boxing. So I, I focused on everything that was either me, I lost or I won. Now, after Rocky, I think after the very first Rocky movie, I think I stood in the parking lot waiting for somebody to bump into me so I could punch him. But um, pretty much after that, I realized this was not going to be what I was going to end up becoming. Um, And as time went on and being in the gang unit and putting kids in the backseat of a car and they'd start crying in 10 minutes of interview, I'm realizing, man, this is not this kid's not in the gang. And uh, it just kind of gave me the, the the opportunity to kind of look back and say, hey, what worked for me as a kid? And because uh, I was a couch potato kind of guy, a little overweight, didn't couldn't do a pull-up, was embarrassed, you know, when I first got started into athlete, athletics. But um, um, this kind of gave me, and it just so happened that one of the guys in my unit used to box here in Dallas. So we went to the department and said, hey, we got this idea, and they gave us like $625. They said, you got to go find a building. We found a small building that gave us like a little 10 by 10 space and we started the boxing program. And over time, this guy kind of drifted away and I was forced into being the coach and uh, immediately realized, oh my God, I'm not really talented enough to do this. So you would, um, it's amazing how many guys in the community used to box as kids and they all one by one started coming to me and asking me if they could help train these kids. Was there a specific kid or a certain situation that made you think about implementing a boxing program? Because you said you were in the gang unit at the time and you were dealing with a lot of kids. No, had... there's one specific incident and, I, and, and it really shocked me. This, this you know, uh, white kid, was he had been uh, taken out of a stolen car and he was in the passenger seat, I believe, and this kid was freaking out, absolutely freaking out that he was involved, that the cops were involved in his life. Um, and you could just tell, and, it, you know, how, how do I say this? There. We were predominantly either uh, Asian gangs, Hispanic, or black gangs. There wasn't a lot of white gangs. There was a few of them, but not very many. And uh, the unfortunate thing about this specific kid was in less than two weeks, he went from freaking out that he was involved 
too involved in a homicide and sat in the back seat of my car and literally had no emotion whatsoever. Two and weeks. I, and I thought, oh, my God, this is crazy. What if I'd have had a chance to grab that kid before this happened? And so you thought that getting this boxing program together would be the best thing. I think a lot of times people that don't understand the sport of boxing think it's this violent thing and that if you're trying to keep kids off the streets and out of committing violent acts, why would you teach them how to do something as violent as boxing? But it's not about that at all. No, and what's amazing about boxing and the thing that I think as coaches we miss and we don't really pr- promote enough is if I can change the personality of how the kid acts in the ring, I change his personality outside. If he's one of those kind of kids that has to have immediate fix and he has to have gratification now, you see that in the ring. By round two, he's either quit or he's throwing his hands up or he's crying. or he's. So if I can change that personality, if I can get him to commit to stay um, outside the ring, you see the same change. How long do kids normally stick with the boxing program? I've had kids that were with me for 15 years. Really? Yeah, I've had most of my kids will stay probably on the average of three to five. Okay. And the boxer that you were helping, was that person a part of this organization to begin with and then turned pro? He he was uh, – what had happened is Dallas Powell had closed their gym due to the lack of support from the city and uh, the whole – so the coach who actually lived in Garland, his two sons, they came over and I invited a group of their kids to come start training at our gym. He's now my head coach. And then at some point, the kid was 18, really, really had a, a young amateur career that could have probably took him to the Olympic, at least the trials. He got sick on the night of the state Golden Gloves and said, hey, I'm, I'm done with this. So they turned him pro. Um, he was 26-3 and three as a professional. He had two minor titles. Um, and then he got his orbital bone broke um, during one of the fights. And we just the doctors really couldn't repair it like they thought. And he had to wear glasses and was seeing double. But that that kid was really showed me the side of boxing I didn't want to be involved in, the professional side, and kind of let us start refocusing back on the kids and just dealing with the amateurs. Let's talk about this event that you guys have coming up, an absolutely monster event, the 17th annual Police versus Firefighters Boxing Tournament. This is happening at the Allen Event Center on September 8th. The organization is called Guns and Hoses, but you come from the police side. Talk to me about when you approached fire departments about getting getting them involved. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, like I said, I'm the gun. My wife's the hose. She was the firefighter. Um, she wanted to be the one that made the matches because she said, you're, you're not going to do this well, and I don't like boxing, so I want to make sure these guys are evenly matched. It was amazing that pretty much the fire departments actually have more guys that probably participated as use as boxers versus the police. So the first couple of years that we did this thing, we were really kind of lacking in the police side, and the fire department is usually the heavier side as far as uh, applications are concerned. Mm. But over time, we started seeing more and more guys that boxed in the police department that were coming forward. Now, there's a little bit of an ego going on for the police and fire, but on the police side, the SWAT guys who probably have that athletic ability, there's a big ego about it. I don't know if I want to get in that ring and lose. Then I'm going to lose my movie machismo out here on the streets, right? <laughs> so... Um, so, yeah, it, it started out as a as a very, um, I, you know, the departments, I guess, not so much the officers and firefighters themselves, but the departments were kind of stand down on it, not real sure how they wanted to support it um, because of what they would consider an act of violence or getting somebody in trouble or getting in a fight afterwards. So uh, over time, most of the chiefs, they come, they come and watch. Um, they let their guys come and try out. They let them come to dinner. So there's been a, I, I guess... Um, we've sold ourselves well to to the area agencies that people are committed to saying, hey, we see what this does. 
Um, so they want to commit to it. Do you have any novice fighters from police or fire departments that are coming out? Maybe you give them, they don't have experience, but you give them six weeks to train and then you uh, get them in the ring? Or does everybody have a boxing background? No, everybody, there's very few. Now, I've had a guy, there's two guys in this year's show that actually boxed for me as kids. Uh, one's a Dallas County Sheriff's deputy, Rocky Pena Hernandez. Hey, how you doing out there? And uh, and uh, um, Mike Tataro, uh, we call him the Rock. And uh, he actually probably could have made the Olympic team. Um, so I'm still yelling at you. Um, but both of those kids have to have talent in order to get in with their opponent. But everybody else gets evaluated. They're all rated between a one and a five. And it's based on their uh, athletic ability, their their what their stamina, their cardio conditioning is, and then their punching power. And all of that goes into like this computer, and they one by one take a look at everybody. And a one can't fight a box of five, but a two can box a three, and vice versa. So, so this goes way beyond just throwing guys on the scale and saying absolutely. you're both welterweights, get in there. Absolutely, and they all they all if you're over three inches in height, my wife sends them a document that says, will you accept the match? Because I don't want you to come in on weigh-ins and go, oh, my God, look at how tall this guy is. Or he's 20 pounds over. And, you know, in the amateur boxing world, 201 plus, you're a heavyweight, you're heavyweight. Well, we don't do that either. If a kid's 15 pounds over, we expect them to accept the match. So if you're 215, we're not going to put you against a 275. Mm. So even though it's the amateur rules and USA Boxing is what we follow, we still want to maintain that. And we put bigger gloves on the guys, 16-ounce, master headgear. they got bigger cheek protectors on them. So we do everything we can to uh, make sure. And then with USA officials and referees, they're there to kind of make sure we protect the guys. How many guys you got fighting this year? Wow, we started out with 23 bouts, and you do this for two reasons. You do it because you never know uh, what's going to happen in the grand scheme of things. An officer or fireman gets hurt in the line of duty, and then you go. We used to say, okay, we're going to pick 17 fights, and then, you know, two weeks into it, oh my God, we're down to 15 bouts because somebody quit, got divorced, got fired, you know. You, 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 would, not, you would not believe the things that we come across. Um, you know, guy, well, for, for example, last year hurt us really bad with Hurricane Harvey and a lot of the firefighters got called up to go to Houston. So we're scrambling to try to find guys to, to make the match. So we never really tell the guys that you, if you have somebody in your weight category, even though there's nobody there to fight you, we tell them keep training because we may call you in a couple of weeks. So Hurricane Harvey was, and then Katrina was the same thing. I mean, we, those firemen get called out and so do the police. So, um, we hope by game night we have 17 bouts. That's usually about as long as the crowd can stand it. I mean, that's that's a lot of boxing. <laughs> it is. And it's three one-minute rounds. Which, three one-minute? Okay, I was going to ask about and, that. And guys will say, come on, more than give me more than one minute. I'm like, you don't need more than one minute. You, you're drained. You yeah. know, and I, we actually had a guy, he's on our, his wife's on our board of directors now. And in about three or round three, he's like, coach, I'm done. I can't go back out there. <laughs> and he goes, you're You're going out there. You're winning. He goes, I'm going to go out there for you, not for me. So <laughs> whatever it takes. Are you going to box? No, no, no. Uh, I, uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico had, a, had their guns and hoses style. And the guy that was the MC, he actually boxed and he said he got knocked out and he's laying on the canvas and he said, oh my God, I got to announce the next fight. So when he said that, I'm like, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. Well, it's probably smart. It's an excellent event. Once again, it's the 17th annual Police versus Firefighters Boxing Tournament. This is happening at the Allen Event Center, Center on September 8th. Bouts start at 7.30, doors at 5.30. You can find details online at gunsandhosesnorthtx.org. I've been speaking with Lieutenant Dave Swaby. He was uh, with the Garland Police Department and now executive director of this organization. Good luck with the event. 
And thank you very much for stopping by and talking with me. I appreciate it, guys. Get your tickets now because they're going fast. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? You spend here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 